We've been working our way through our series again, written so that you may believe. Uh, this is it's interesting. I, I, I do my sermons and I save them on my computer, and this is actually part 17. Part 17 of the sermon series, written so that you may believe. Um, we will probably have well over 100 sermons in this series as we harmonize the Gospels through the next however many years, decade, uh, who knows, five years. Um, but it's, it's been really, really a fun time. Uh, last year we started uh, early, right, before, before, before the birth of Jesus, at the announcement of John, at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And, and then we, we kind of proceeded through that and ended around Christmas time with his birth, and then he grew up uh, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This year we picked up with John the Baptist actually coming and paving a way and uh, making straight a highway in the desert for the Lord, and that he pointed to the Messiah. said, so there's the Messiah. There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we've seen lots of different aspects of that, uh, that story, those moments and of, of Jesus. And last week we, we uh, heard about Jesus calling of the first disciples. And we saw that interaction with him and Nathaniel. And, uh, and really God saying, listen, I am, I am omniscient. I am omnipotent. I am omnipresent. I am the Messiah. And this is the one that Nathaniel was looking for. And whether or not, remember he was dreaming and thinking under this fig tree, whether or not he was kind of in the same situation that Jacob was at Jacob's ladder, Jesus identified him with Jacob because he said, uh, unlike Jacob, you're a man who has no guile, right? You, you, your, your thoughts are pure and your heart is towards me and you're, you're looking for God to provide uh, his covenant and his, his Messiah. And God promised that even through Jacob. And uh, we, so we saw some of that last week. And what we really saw last week in this calling of disciples and, and making disciples is that in the deepest times of sorrow or trouble, uh, in the busiest routine, whatever it is, God is there. We knew that God was there and God was, God was up to something in his covenant love for us, drawing men and women to himself. He's calling us, and we saw these, these attributes, he's calling us to come and see. Right? And we talked about not arguing with someone, arguing someone in the kingdom of God, but inviting them and say, well, come and see. Remember uh, when Nathaniel was approached and said, and say, hey, we found the Messiah, you know, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And what was Philip's response? He said, well, just come and see. Right? Come and see. So Jesus is calling us to come and see, and he's calling us to be made new in him. And then invite others to seek and savor the Savior, right? To come and see Jesus. So that's where we left off last week. And this week we head into chapter two. And this is uh, the, the, the sermon title today is The Miracle at Cana. This is the water into wine miracle. Uh, preface on a little bit of this or just a little disclaimer. I, I preached on this probably, I don't know, 10 years ago at some point. I filled in for Stan or maybe more than that. I preached on this, this topic and uh, people left the church. So just, just get ready. It's going to be exciting, all right? You ready? Um, uh, it's interesting. We, I, I, was, I was actually on my hunting trip with my, my dad and brother. This miracle came up. We started talking about it. Why did Jesus turn the water into wine? What was up with that? What's so special about wine? And why would he do that? If, you know? So we're, we're going to talk about it, that. But we really, today, I want us to think in an overarching way, in an overarching theme of the Gospels. Remember our theme verse, right, is John 20, 31. But these, that is the works and words of Jesus, the Gospels, the accounts of Christ, these are written, so, so we talk about this miracle and this account, this first sign, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's this whole series. That's, that's, that's the, what the Gospels are intended to be for. So if we spend too much time talking about wine and parties and weddings, we very well may miss the Messiah. And that is not the intention at all of the writers. That's not the intention of John as he writes this account of this miracle at Cana. So we're going to look at that miracle at Cana and see what exactly was going on there and what was Jesus up to and why did he do 
what he did. So let's pray and then we'll read the passage and then we'll, we'll break it down. Father, thank you so much for, for your great love for us. We thank you that we can come here together uh, to worship you, God, to celebrate who you are, to pray uh, for the causes that are near and dear to your heart. God, may we always be about our Father's business. May we long to be about the kingdom. And, and God, uh, help us to decrease uh, our affections for the things of this world that draw us away from you and draw us away from, from obedience to you. God, may, our, may our, the affections of our heart only increase towards you. We love you, Lord. We ask that you convict us now and challenge us and shape us by your word. Uh, may our hearts and our minds be open to receive what you have for us today. Conform us into the image of Jesus Christ the Son, and we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we're in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So we're going to read that together, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Then, or when the head waiter tasted, what the, tasted the water after it had become wine, uh, he did not know where it came from, though the servants knew who had drawn uh, the servants who, drew, who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, "Everyone sets out the fine wine first, and then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now." Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. All right, well, a lot to unpack here uh, in this miracle of Cana, the miracle of Cana. So we're going to jump right into it, and, uh, and, and when, when we look at this, I want to, again, look at the context of where John, the Apostle John, has taken us through, through the text. And one of the things, I, I brought this up last week from chapter 1, we see chapter 1 in verses 14, and I'm going to read 16, just so we see a little bit of what God is doing here. Uh, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us, right? Jesus became flesh. God of the universe came down and put on human flesh and bones. And he dwelt among us. And say, so we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son of the father, uh, from the father, full of grace and truth. So we see this, this observation of glory is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. But he was here for a purpose, not just to give us wine or a miracle. He was the miracle. God becoming man was the miracle in order to die for our sin in a place that we should have died. He was full of grace and truth and says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. The grace upon grace is not just from Miracles that he performed or signs he performed, all of those things point to him. These are written that we would believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, we would have life in his name. So get some context out of that. We're, we're John, John the baptizer was trying to point to Jesus. John the apostle is writing about the accounts of people pointing to Jesus. So we would have life in his name, and we would receive grace upon grace from his fullness. So let's look at this miracle in Cana. Number one is this. The wine runs out. Number one, the first thing we see is the wine runs out. Look at verses one through three. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. 
When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. So a problem came up, right? This dilemma came up. Now, weddings in, in this time lasted a week, and there was a lot of celebration and joy to be had at a wedding. Oftentimes, the wedding was just like this spare-no-expense thing. It was like the once-in-a-lifetime like joy and party and celebration that you would probably never see again for yourself, unless you attended a, someone else's wedding, right? Those were the, the things to do and places to go. So they would have wine there for all the guests, and it was, it was actually a legal obligation for the family to provide the wine so the celebration could continue the whole time. And in fact, if the wine ran out, you could face uh, litigation from other people. Like you could be sued because, hey, you didn't take care of us the way you're supposed to take care of us at this wedding. So there are some details there we need to know. Uh, it's in Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana is mentioned previously in the last, uh, last chapter when we talked about Nathaniel. Nathaniel was from Cana. So there's a little bit of a tie here. The question is, why are they in Cana? Well, I said last week, Cana was maybe four or six miles, depending on where you think Cana was, from, from Nazareth. So there were some family ties. There was, of course, a rivalry there. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right, that was going on. But there was an invitation. It says here the, his mother was there. Uh, Jesus' mother was there. And then it says, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Now, Mary comes to him and says, hey, the wine's run out. In some capacity, Mary probably is there as a, as, as a help to the family. Like, like someone she knows is getting married, and the mom's like, hey, can you help us to, and be a part of the servers and, and organize what's going on with the catering? That could be going on here very likely because Mary comes up with this burden and says, hey, the wine's run out. It, at least they're there. They know the people, right? And then Jesus is there because he's related to Mary and he's part of the family and probably knows. And his disciples, who he just called, were invited also. So, so some commentators may even say, like, Nathaniel knows somebody here. Really, and Nathaniel was the in, right? Nathaniel knew who was getting married, so, and he very likely did. They knew and they, were, they weren't there. They didn't just show up to say, I'm Jesus, I'm going to do an amazing miracle. They were there invited. They were part of the, part of the group. And Mary was worried about this fact that the wine ran out. There was a burden there. It may have very well been also. You think about Mary. Mary knew and, and treasured those things about Jesus in her heart. He, he, she knew who he was. And this was an opportunity. Jesus, I know who you are. The wine's run out. You've got to do something about this. Right? But the wine had run out. In this time also, wine, wine in, at a party, wine at a, at a wedding like this symbolized joy. Like there was joy to be had. In fact, rabbis later coined and said, when the wine runs out, joy runs out. When the wine runs out, joy runs out. We talked about the legal obligation also the, the family had there. So Jesus, think about this, Jesus is there, and, and like he normally does, if you see him uh, perform a miracle in the, in the New Testament, he's doing it out of compassion and love and kindness. He's there to meet a physical need. He, he desires to do those things. He has compassion on people. So he's likely feeling now, uh, whatever he feels inside, these people have run out of wine. It's too early. They shouldn't have. There's a need there. They want to help. He want, maybe wants to help them out to provide this. And maybe, and maybe even he went above and beyond. There's 180 gallons potentially here of wine, and it's going to be well, well, uh, way too much for just the, the rest of the, the wedding. They're going to have leftovers and provide a wedding gift. So Jesus is going above and beyond, uh, as he often does, right? So we see this wedding in Galilee taking place and, and the wine runs out. But I want us to think about this, the wine running out. Because when, when Jesus gets there, it, this, this story is not about the wine, but it's, it's so much about the joy. That Jesus, when Jesus comes, he's the one that brings joy and he's the one that fills us with joy to overflowing. Wine runs out. I want to read a, a passage out of Ecclesiastes 
chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. This is about just a pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, and Solomon had this. He says, I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom uh, for far beyond all of those uh, who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. Like he, he was the wisest man to ever live, Scripture says. I applied my mind to know, know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this, too, is a pursuit of the wind. Like we can never know everything, right? We can't become the, the wisest that we could be. He says, for with much wisdom is much sorrow. Isn't that true? We learn more and we see more and we realize more. We grieve more. Like, oh, wow. We, we, sometimes I like to be in the dark and be a little bit slow, right? He said, with much wisdom is sorrow and, and with much knowledge, as, as knowledge increases, grief increases. The wine runs out. We, we might for a time think this is going to fill and this is going to satisfy, this is going to bring joy, but eventually it will run out. The pursuit of our knowledge or our wisdom or our, our career or whatever we put in front of God, those things will run out. They will be depleted. I read this verse last week in 1 John 2. The exhortation says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You understand this? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not hold on to them. Do not set your affection in the heart, your, the affections of your heart solely on the things of the world because they will disappoint. They will run out. It goes on. It says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. See, we're seeking to be filled from something that's not from the Father through the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And it goes on, it says, And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. See, the, the wine is going to run out, but the will of God and the work of God is that we would believe in the Son of God that he has sent, that we would set our hearts on Jesus. So yes, the wine runs out, and for you and I, we need to understand the wine will run out. Even if it's refilled, the wine will run out. It will become dull and bitter and joy will seep out. But our focus should be on that of Jesus. Let's look at the next aspect here. The miracle of Canaan number two. There will come a day. There will come a day. And, and look how Jesus responds. So, so Mary's concerned. The wine has run out. They don't have any wine. We need to provide for them and help them. Let's do something. And look at Jesus' response to this. And some people have thought, this is really harsh. Why would you say this? And in our culture, you don't say this kind of thing to a woman. Okay, guys, you don't say this. I've tried. It didn't work out really well. What concern of this is, uh, or, or, or sorry, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Right, we don't say that, right, guys? Now, th back then, this this greeting wasn't like it is today. The way, I, even the way I said it, I had to really try to practice and read it earlier, kind of better than I said it just now, because it, the tone really matters a lot too, right? But what what was going on here? He says, uh, "What what has this concern of yours?" To do with me, woman. You could say ma'am, right? But he's, saying, he's not saying mother. He said, Jesus asked that. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And, and what is happening, at the very least, it's just a very polite way to say, listen, this, this is not my business. This is your business. And, and mom, listen, I, I'm not about being the, your son anymore. I'm about being God's son. That my ministry has started and you, you know what's happened at the Jordan. You know I was baptized. You know that all these, I've started gathering disciples. The time has come that my ministry is starting, and I'm separating myself from, from being a part of your family and household first. My first priority is to be a part of God's 
family and to be God's son and, and my allegiance is to his kingdom and, and to obey what he wants me to do. So there was a separation there. He said, I, I want to I let you know there's a separation going on here. Uh, it's very similar uh, later on in the story. We see it in Matthew. Um, there's, uh, Jesus was speaking to the crowds and his mothers and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. But someone told him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside. They're wanting to speak to you. Here's his response. He says, he replied to the one who was speaking, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, Jesus was continually separating himself out. And he says, he even tells us the gospel, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel, that the gospel will separate Mothers from sons, right? Fathers from daughters, brothers from sisters. It will separate. And too often we cling to those relationships and say, no, this is the most important. No matter what, I'm going to do this. And so often when we do that, we compromise in the areas that God has called us to obey. We compromise in the way that God has called us to be faithful. We say, no, no, I, this is, I need to protect this relationship. No, you need to protect your relationship with God. The gospel separates. And if you want the legitimacy of your faith to be on display, don't compromise the legitimacy of your faith by bending down and bowing to the whims of a family member. We must be about our Heavenly Father's business. Does that mean our, our earthly relationships are cut off and just torn away and ripped apart? No, not necessarily. Right? We, we should still have relationships. As, as much as it's up to you and I, we should live in peace with all people. But we should, and as we do that in relationship, not compromise our obedience to the Son and to the Father. And Jesus was saying that. Listen, I, I get that you're in distress. I, I get that this is even a miracle I can perform. And, and in his mind, he's like, I'm going to do it. But you need to understand I'm doing it under the authority of the Father, not under your authority. That the business I have is the business of the Father, not of yours. He was saying there's a separation here. Listen, some of us might be elevating earthly relationships over the relationship we should have with and our allegiance we should have to Jesus. I want to look at Peter. Peter was the same thing. Later on in Matthew 16, uh, it says, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer uh, many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Now this, uh, just a segue real quick. He's talking about that's his time when it comes. That's when the time comes. That's when the hour comes. It's necessary the Son of Man will suffer. And Peter he took him aside, remember this? He took him aside and rebuked Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. Lord, this will never happen to you. You see the, the, the relational thing going on here? There's a struggle there. There's a little bit of friction. And Peter's like, no, no, Jesus, this will never happen. I'll make sure of it. You can't, don't say those things. We aren't going to make them that mad. We'll, we'll stop before we get there. Well, I'll help you not cross the line. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You see how earthly relationships can be a hindrance to our faith and allegiance to God? And I want, to, I want to go on. It says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because, so why is he a hindrance? Because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Human, this is Matthew 16. I mean, we, we've been through a lot of stuff. Peter's seen a lot of things. He's, he's heard Jesus teach for years at this point. He should understand that it's necessary the Son of Man will be crucified. 
He's like, no, 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 that's, you're still my king. We're going to be in a political situation here. No, Peter, you don't quite understand because you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about human concerns. So he says, my, my time has not come. So when he talks about to his mom, he says, what, what of this, oh, what can, I'm sorry, this, it's a different translation here. What has this concern of yours to do with me? He's pointing out, this is different than my, my priorities might be different than your priorities. Even the reason you feel an obligation may be different than the reason I feel an obligation. She might feel compassion. There's a need. Our, our friends, we don't want to have our friends embarrassed here. Let's make sure we provide some wine here. Can you do that, Jesus? And Jesus says, I, I want to reveal my glory, but I, it's not my time hasn't come yet to go all in here. What does that mean? My time has not come. Jesus had specific things to do before his time had come, before he would be crucified. And it's interesting to see that, that uh, there's a passage in John 7 where um, they tried to seize him. He was speaking some things and teaching some things. They tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Like, you can't touch this. You, I'm not, it's not, not the time yet. However, many from the crowd believed in him. Now, this is the thing. Why is, why is this time not come? Because people are still eager to believe and need to believe and need to see him as the Messiah that's come to redeem. So it, it not, they couldn't touch him. It said, however, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man does, will he? They're saying, look, look at what this man is doing. Look at who this person is. This has got to be the Messiah. They're believing because of what he is doing, because of what he is saying. And he still wants more to believe. The signs are pointing out that he's the Messiah, but his time had not come. And we look through the entire Gospel of John and all the Gospels. The, the time that refers that they're referring to, right? The time has not come. This hour has not come. It is the moment God is fully glorified in Christ. It is the hour of his death. And I would encourage you in your, in your discussion questions, this is in there, but read further John 17. We're going to re read John 17, 1 through 3. Read the whole thing later with your family or in your discussion or just by yourself. Here's what it says, though. This is John 17. This is high priestly prayer. This is just before he's betrayed and arrested and then goes to the cross. This is, this is it. So he prays at this point now. He says, uh, he spoke to things. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. There it is. The hour has come. The time has come. He just told his mom, the hour's not here. My time's not come yet. Now he's praying to the Father after all that he's done. He prays before he gets betrayed. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. And, and really what I want to highlight, what I want us to see, is this miracle is not so much about wine as it is about showing the glory of God and revealing Jesus Christ that people would believe in him. He would show and he would teach us what, what real life and, and what real joy would be. And that real life and real joy was in him. And that leads us to number three. This is where it gets a little deeper. Number three is this. There is joy in Christ that the law can't provide. There is joy in Christ that the law cannot provide. Provide. Let's look at the passage in John chapter 2. Look at verse 6 through 10. He goes on, right? This, he, just, he just gets done saying, um, or the, the, mom, the mother says, and this is interesting, we didn't talk about this. The mom turns to the servants after she's been rebuked, 
She turns to the servants, which, which that's kind of an indicator too that she has a role here. She, she's telling the servants what to do. She, she says, listen, do whatever he says. I, I've, I've approached him. He's rebuked me and shown me my place. I understand that I'm not just in a mother place now. Now I'm, now I'm in, a, in a human role and he's in the, the father role that he has and, or, or the relationship with the father. And she says, basically, turns, turns even and says in faith, just do whatever he says. I, I, I will trust what he decides. And he, he's not going to do it because I said so. He'll do it because his father in heaven said so. So do whatever he says. So in verse 6, we pick up. So now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 to 30 gallons. And these, are, these, are, these are stone jars, large. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and, and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. A few things I want to walk through in this text. Again, Jesus, during this wedding uh, celebration, he is there to say, listen, the Messiah has come. I want to reveal my glory. And, and the glory of the Messiah is to bring joy to overflowing. That, that whatever you were believing in before, whatever religious system you were aspiring to, to, to uh, those, those are gone. And even this, this idea of Jewish purification, this was not some biblical law. This was extra rules that were added, right? And they, they had an argument later on in Scripture, the disciples about washing their hands before they ate. And Jesus like, these are your rules. These are your empty, hollow, dried up rules. And remember when John the baptizer was out by the Jordan, right? He didn't go into Jerusalem, into the temple and say, listen, I, I, I'm going to change up everything you thought and I'm going to try to correct you. He went out to the Jordan. He was in the desert and he was calling people out of those religious systems. He was calling people out of the religion and out of the dryness of that, out of the places that were just dried up and there was no more joy because it was just running through the motions, going through the motions. It was a heavy burden that they couldn't carry. He said, come out of that. Come be new. Come find faith in Christ. Come find the joy of the Messiah that's coming. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when Jesus was here at this wedding, these cisterns of Jewish purification, they were symbols of this religious system that left everyone dry and left everybody empty and left everybody hungry and parched and wanting more and not having enough. So you see, this miracle is not like, hey, let's, let's have a party continue. It's like, let's have joy increase. The Messiah is here. The culmination of joy is in the Messiah. The Messiah would be the one that brought real joy. The Messiah would be the one that brought real hope. The religious systems couldn't do that. Such a, such a, a wonderful picture there. This empty, dry cistern that, that maybe had water in it but wasn't full. Jesus was like, let me show you what I'm all about. I'm about bringing joy to the fullest, and I'm going I'm to overflow with joy in this place. An amazing picture of what's going on there. So he said, fill them to the brim. Uh, also, this, there's nothing added to the water to make it into wine. It was filled to the brim already. Jesus just turned it into wine. 
And they said, draw some out, right? So this, this is not a miracle. Listen, because the, the head waiter, the head waiter describes the scene, and we tend, tend to think like, oh, yeah, a party should be like this. This is a description of what usually happens, not what is prescribed to happen. Do we understand this? The description of what possibly and does happen at, at, at weddings is, hey, here's the great stuff. Drink, eat, drink, and be merry. Get drunk. Go, go crazy. The head waiter's like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying needs to happen here, but that's what does happen. It's not a prescription. It's a description. Jesus here, through this miracle, is not promoting drunkenness and sin. Do we, I need to make sure that's clear. And, and, and for some people, they think, see, Jesus gave us wine. We should drink till our heart's content, and, and we're so happy and we're drunk. That is not at all what Scripture says for us. Don't use this miracle as an excuse for you to continue to, to overindulge in alcohol. Now, what does Scripture say about that? This is just a tiny little part because I want to give you what Scripture says. Scripture says, you, Christians, listen, we may consume alcohol, but we do not drink to drunkenness. We obey the law, so if you're not of age, you don't drink alcohol, right? And we don't drink in a way that causes a brother or sister to stumble in their faith and maybe overdrink or overindulge also. That's the prescription from Scripture. Now, we could have lots of conversations around and about that, but that's what Scripture would say. So there's no, no condoning here saying, hey, let's, let's promote by this miracle, let's promote drunkenness. He's just saying, listen, usually we have the fine wine first. And we, now, what he's saying is now we still have the finest of wine. You've stayed, saved the finest till now. So they had already had the fine wine, and then it all ran out. And then Jesus, what he made was even better than that. So that joy may be revealed and joy might abound. So he wasn't there to promote drunkenness or sin. It's a miracle to show that Jesus is the one that restores joy and he's the one that calls us out of the dry and empty religion. So what is Jesus filling us with? Well, Ephesians 5 says this, don't get drunk with wine. Well, there's our, our instruction, right? Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with what? The Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. And it goes on. So what should we be filled with? The Spirit. That's where joy comes from. What does that joy look like? Don't be drunk by, uh, on wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. Here's what it looks like. Speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, joy is being in Christ and being filled with His Spirit not being consumed with the earthly things of this world. I want to read a passage again out of John chapter 3. This is when I read this a little bit last week when John the baptizer was asked, like, hey, Jesus is taking away our disciples. He's baptizing. And, and John's like, great, right? John was an amazing, amazing man, but there's an earthly allegiance there that these, these disciples and these people had to, to sever in order to believe Jesus. So no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven, John says. You yourselves can testify that I told you I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend, he said me, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly. There's joy because of the Messiah. So this joy of mine is complete, complete. and he says, he must increase, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. Right? The spirit must increase, and I, the flesh, must decrease. The one who comes uh, from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, and get this, 
since he gives the Spirit without measure. This is God. God giving us the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to his, into his hands. And then in verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has lots of wine. Oh, that's not right, sorry. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. When we look at this miracle, we have to see the difference between being empty through earthly pursuits and being filled by the joy and through the Spirit of God through faith in Christ. We need to see that we must decrease so that Jesus must then increase. We don't want to be about the earthly. We want to be about the heavenly. See, real joy is found through faith in Christ. Even when he provides wine to say, listen, I can fill with joy. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I can fill with joy. I can fill with joy. This is not the filling of joy, but I can do it. I can fill with joy, right? There's real joy found in, in, uh, through faith in Christ. But even the wine that Jesus provided would what? Eventually run out again. Do we get that? Even what Jesus provided through a miracle would eventually run out again. Even, even people that have been healed from all kinds of things would eventually die. You see, we, we don't come face to face with that very often, do we? We think, oh, this miracle is what I want. I want this miracle. No, you ought to want the one who provided the miracle. Because in him, there's grace upon grace from his fullness. The one that believes in the Son has eternal life. See, there is a joy, there is a celebration, there is a party that we should all want to be at where there will be wine and choice meats and all kinds of amazing food. It's in Revelation chapter 19. It says, he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. That is where we want to be. We don't want the miracle today in our house or the miracle today to happen at Thanksgiving only. We want to know that he is the one that provides the miracle and that in him is the real life that we need. And that those of us who have been invited and called to repent of our sin and turn to him in faith, we're the ones that are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Again, it goes back to there, there will be a day. There, his time had come to the, at the cross and there will be a day for you and I to experience real joy, full joy, in the presence of God forever. But that is not, that is not to be undermined by the joy we would have from a miracle today. The joy that we have in a miracle today should point us to the one who gave the miracle, to Jesus Christ. And that, that leads us to the last point. That miracle in Cana, uh, we see that the signs reveal his glory. The signs reveal his glory. John chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Jesus did this. What? Turned the water into wine. Revealed joy upon joy that was greater than the emptiness of the religion. He did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. So what, is it, what does this mean? You know, people say, what, what was the meaning of this? It was to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. Here's the issue. When we see the miracles in Scripture, when we see Jesus change the water into wine and compassionately give a gracious, abundant gift to a wedding party that needed it, what he's saying is, I am the one who fills with joy. I am the one who takes what is empty and dry and can make it overflow again. I'm the one who pours out joy. 
I'm the one that, that all the signs point to. I'm the Messiah. And, and for you and I, we need to understand we ought not miss the Messiah. Don't miss Jesus. When we see miracles, when we see things going on that are, that are good in our life, don't miss the Messiah. I want to read John 20 again, verses now 30 and 31. Again, this is our theme verse for the whole series. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, of his disciples that are not written in this book. So he didn't just limit himself to the few that are in this book. But these are written so that, if you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you're looking for the miracle, and if you miss the Messiah, the miracle won't matter. Don't miss the Messiah. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we are always in awe of you and we're thankful for uh, who you are. We're thankful that you reveal yourself so that our affections could go squarely on you. And God, I know you bring us good things and, you, and there are miracles all around us that you perform. But God, those miracles are meant to show that your joy, the joy we have in Christ, is the fullest we could ever have. And anything else is substandard and, and less. So God, I, I pray that you would help us to, to turn the affections of our heart away from the things of this world that are earthly, away from even the outcomes of miracles, but God, that you would turn our, the affections of our heart to the one who brings miracles, to the one who is the miracle, to Jesus Christ, who has given himself for our sin. God, help us to overflow with joy and hope because of what he has done. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.